Welcome to another episode of Behind the Scenes with Colin Edmonds, where we chat with significant people working in TV and show business, whose voices and stories are never usually heard. This week's special guest is one of British television's most experienced executive producers, with overall responsibility for the nation's best-loved and longest-running intellectual quiz programmes, primarily University Challenge, but also Countdown, and many, many more. Although he started his career working on light entertainment shows starring Scylla Black and Lily Savage and Bob Monkhouse. So I'm flattered and thrilled he's put his incredibly busy production schedule on pause and set his encyclopedias to one side to share with us a behind-the-scenes glimpse of his tremendous career. So please welcome the unflappable and the unstoppable Mr. Peter Gwynn. Hello, Peter. You're very kind, Colin. Very kind indeed. Thank you for that build-up. I'll try and live up to it. Well, that's all. I speak truth. I speak truth when I when I make these notes and announce you. Uh, and you are uh, one of the most unflappable people in television. You, I think you and Kevin Bishop, who we chatted to um, a while ago, you are that nothing phases you. It seems right from the get-go of your career. That's very interesting. Um, I'm very pleased that you think that. Um, I try and maintain a kind of unflappable exterior. Inside, I am knotted up with anxiety and terror and can't sleep at night very often. Um, But I think that's not very helpful for your team to see. So I think it's quite um, I think it's quite good if you can present a sort of calm demeanour outwardly, regardless of what's going on inside. Yeah, in your capacity, I suppose, when you walk on the floor, you need the crew and everybody thinking, oh, it's going to be OK because Peter's here. Um, that and also um, I've seen other producers um, on a studio floor saying things like it's all going marvellously well when it's actually not. But just hearing that is kind of quite reassuring, even though you're being told that white is black. Yeah. It's good to hear it. I think <laughs> Can I start with University Challenge, please? Of course. Got to. How long have you been involved in the iconic series? I think it's 29 years. I think it's about 29 years. It's nearly 30 years. Do you think you'll get to like it? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's, I don't know. It's a very rewarding show to work on. I mean, it's basically the same programme over and over and over again. Um, but I find you always learn, inevitably, there's always a question you haven't heard, a piece of information that's never come your way before. Um, That remains very interesting, fascinating for me, but also the change over the decades in terms of what students know, uh, the kind of knowledge they have access to, uh, that in a longer-term way, I suppose, I find very interesting as well. Um, a lot of us working on the show have worked on it for a long time, um, and we do love it. We do find it rewarding. Yeah, and I think the show is um, so oh, precise by its very nature. Uh, the experience on it must have its own rewards. Oh, in fact, it, it's essential, quite honestly. You can't come in as a Tyro producer and, and run University Challenge unless you've followed in your footsteps for for many, many years to know the the tricks of the trade? Um, I think that's probably true in some aspects, yes. Uh, In a way, it's a fairly simple show to produce. We've got um, a very set format. We don't divert from that. We're a studio show. We don't have the 
um, the um, atrocities that location work can throw upon you. Mm. Um, but essentially, I think it's to do with the questions and how you word a question and to try and make the show as fair for the contestants, as interesting for the viewers as possible, and also to try not to trip yourself up in the gallery if you're the person listening to the show being recorded and the answer you hear from a student is not the one you'd expected but you suddenly think oh my god are they right Um, and you've got half a second to decide whether you award points or not yes yeah i understand that i suppose you know it's it's um with a show that's been under your auspices for the for 30 years and it started what 19 the show the series started i think yeah, 1960. Yeah, but it, it's on Under Jeremy, yes, uh, 1994. Uh, I started, I think, the following year. But yes, 1962 was when it was first seen on air. So if, effectively, it's, it's really part of the fabric of the nation. Yes, yes, very much so. I think um, so. And I think probably from your point of view, show-wise, uh, once you're in the studio all the work with a capital W has been done because it's all in the prep, isn't it? That's absolutely right. Everything's in the prep. Uh, We spend months working on the questions for the recordings. But once you've done that, once you've gone through the questions umpteen times, you think they're watertight, you think nothing can go wrong, then yes, um, hopefully the matches themselves, um, they'll just run themselves. We try, if possible, to do them in one take. Might yeah. have a few pickups at the end of the show, but if possible, um, one take serves the student teams. They much prefer it to have a straight run through without any pull-ups or hiccups or anything like that. So that's certainly what we always aim to do. I, yeah, I find that fascinating. And when you put the mix of questions together, are there any kind of criteria that you set yourself? I mean, would you look at a team and think, okay, there's a philosophy student there, so maybe we should err not towards anything of a philosophical nature to give him the advantage? We don't do that, no. When we're casting the questions, we cast them so that set of questions could work for any pair of teams. Um, so we don't point questions at particular individuals, partly because they all hate answering on their own specialism. You know, if you're a philosopher and you get a physics question right, yippee. If you're a philosopher and you can't remember who Socrates is, you're going to <laughs> next time you walk into supervision. So, you know, they, very, very often people do not want to answer on what they are meant to know about and what the taxpayer is paying good money for them to know. <laughs> Um, so, okay. Do you audition the students or do the universities come to you to say, this is the team we'd like to put forward, please? Uh, well, it's a bit of both. Each institution, each uh, university or university college is responsible for its own team selection. We contact every eligible institution and say, please apply to be on our lovely little quiz programme. Um, unfortunately, Um, a great number do, they will put their own teams together. We then send our research team around the country and we interview all the applying teams. They've already done a test paper on their application form, but the main um, means of selection is an interview in which we ask them to sit a test paper, which is invigilated. They hear 40 questions played for them on a DVD, um, and then there'll be a conversation in which mm. we assess their strengths in terms of personality and 
anything else that might factor into whether we want them on the programme or not. In the main, it's the score on their test paper. But we do look for other things as well, how much we think a team might enjoy the process and how much that enjoyment will um, aid the viewer's enjoyment. Um, if it's an institution that's never appeared before, then that might be something we really want to encourage. Uh, we've got some you know, great uh, big beasts of the competition who we can, we can rely on always to enter. But we're always looking for those institutions who will make their debut because we think that's very um, rewarding for viewers. Absolutely. Me included, because uh, I was rooting for Oxford Brooks a couple of years ago because Lucy went there. Uh, she was the first member of our both families in this house to um, to go to university. And she went to Brooks and Brooks, Oxford Brooks pitched up on University Challenge and had not a bad run. And so I was I'm thrilled that you're undertaking new institutions. Yes. And it's not just Balliol or Keys and yes. those kinds of highfalutin kind of places. Yes, yes, absolutely. So at the moment, you're overseeing, as we speak, the biggest change in University Challenge that um, we've seen in 30 years that you've seen in in your entire tenure there with uh, Mr. Pexman standing down and a new presenter coming on board. Um, in terms of uh, Amal Rajan coming on board... Did you have to audition him or was he, I suppose, thrust upon you? Um, I'm afraid I've got the most boring answer. Um, because of um, the way our programmes operate, um, obviously we're an ITV production. We make the show for the BBC. The BBC, as broadcaster, choose the presenters. So I was relieved of the hideous task of trying to think who could possibly take over from Jeremy. People had been asking me this for years, you know, long before Jeremy had any thought of wanting to retire. You know, who would you have to replace Jeremy? And I found the question unanswerable. Yeah. Um, I am delighted to say that the selection process um, was not something I had to <laughs> over. So I had a call from um, from the BBC to say, what do you think? about your new presenter being Amol. Um, I immediately thought, interesting, good choice. I can completely see the logic. Mm. We've been working with him for a short while now. Um, I find him to be the most charming, hardworking person you could ever possibly meet and absolutely focused on the game. A genuine, a, a genuine fan of the game. He loves it. He loves being in studio. We've recorded 14 shows with him so far of what will be the next series, mm. we always record a long time ahead of transmission because we only have a short window for recording that fits in with the students' um, availability. Mm. Um, so when these shows go out, I think people will be delighted by Amal's presentation. Oh, sure. Looking forward to it enormously. In terms of student availability does that mean that you record them during um university hiatus periods or do you take pull them out of term time in order to make the shows we do pull them out of term time it's mainly their second term we record the show between uh, the end of february and the end of april mm. every year which is the clearest time for students in terms of avoiding their their, their, their busiest periods their exam periods um one thing I've noticed about students over the decades is that the current crop seem far more focused on taking their exams and doing well 
than I ever was when I was a student. I mean, you know, we paid no attention to our coursework whatsoever. We just did absolutely <laughs> what we wanted. Um, but certainly students are much, much more focused now. So that's really, that's that's the best time to get them. It can't be over the summer because they've all got, got gone off grape picking or doing whatever students do. <laughs> so we do have that that small window. Did, um, did Mr. Paxman have much input into... Not necessarily the, the questions per se, but the phrasing of the questions. Because after all, I always think him delivering the questions is almost as tough. I, first of all, I don't understand half the questions. But also the delivery of the question, the posing of the questions is just as tough as, as the, the eight students they're having to answer. So does he get to say, oh, can you, is there an easier way to say this? Um, I think more so when we first started to work with him. I think what happened is that we get used to how he delivers. Um, we get to know what he wants to say, what's a tricky thing to say. Um, so hopefully, as the years wore on, we were able to put the questions in a fairly deliverable form. Um, it's interesting. I never wanted the questions to sound as if Jeremy had written them. I always wanted the questions to, to have um, more of a degree of formality um, that Jeremy could sometimes react to or react against. You know, just very occasionally, if he thought the question was too recondite, he'd throw the card over his shoulder and say, why you should be expected to know that, I don't know. Um, but uh, answer to your question, working with Jeremy, we tried to get the measure of what he wanted to say and how he wanted to say it, yeah. That's very interesting because it's, it's delicate. You know, you, you've put it very easily, but it's a delicate tightrope to tread, I think. As a joke writer, you tailor your jokes to whoever you're working for. Okay, Bob Monkhouse would say that. Terry Wogan wouldn't say that. And I think it's a, it's, it's really a question of of knowing what your presenter wouldn't say necessarily, definitively, rather than what they would say. Yeah, I don't know if that makes any sense at all. But from your point of view, you've, you're balancing these two two things, which is a remarkable feat of skill, in my view. Yes, um, I think that's absolutely right. There are certain terms of phrase that would sound wrong in Jeremy's mouth. Mm. Uh, certain words he wouldn't say. I can't think of any off the top of my head. But um, you know, it's interesting that you mention uh, Monkhouse uh, writing jokes and so on and so forth. Maybe we'll come on to this later. But in terms of whatever skill I had in preparing question material, I think I learned that in its entirety from being in the writers' meetings on Bob's Full House. Um, the way you write a question is basically, it seems to me, the same way that you write a joke. Mm. You've got a finite number of words. The more concisely you can express yourself, the better. You need to put into your question the requisite number of elements so people can get to the answer in the same way that if you're observing the rule of three, which I learned in those writers' meetings on Bob's Full House, mm. that's what you need to make the the gag work, the punchline work. So the two disciplines, I think, writing a joke and writing a university challenge question are almost identical. Um, so in a, and always... Yeah. So uh, in a way, did you think that experience of working on an LE quiz show like Bob Stewart House, which I'd like to come to later on, if we may, please, do you think that informed uh, your transition into more intellectual quiz type shows um, in terms was... of fra phrasing? Yes, yes, absolutely. It was a very, very good grounding. Um, I, I wasn't aware of it at the time, but yes, it was. It was an invaluable grounding. Yes, I suppose there is. I've always said there's an art and a science to comedy and joke writing in particular. But they, I'd like to pursue um, 
phrasing and pronunciation now and throw at you uh, your announcer, uh, Roger Tilling. Um, <laughs> how he manages to bark out those very often multi-syllable names from very often overseas students is at great speed is absolutely fantastic isn't it yes it is absolutely fantastic um and especially when we have a very closely fought contest and the pace of the contest increases towards the the gong the final minutes and roger's um pace of delivering those names will increase until it becomes a kind of frantic shriek but he always gets it right um <laughs> it's, it's absolutely amazing some of those surnames are yes very very challenging for any announcer but i think in those you know in all the time we've been working with roger um we've never had to pull up because of his pronunciation or missing a name or we've never had to do a pickup he always gets it right i think a lot of people including our students um think that roger is an app and when they press their buzzer to answer that triggers a pre-recording of roger delivering their surname but no he sits on a chair high up above the the um the set he observes the proceedings and he does the whole thing live he is absolutely brilliant at it Remar absolutely remarkable. You wrote the definitive history of the universe of University Challenge as a program um, some years ago, and I, I suppose University Challenge is or was one of the first anomalies in the sense that it ran for a while on Granada on ITV, and then shifted across to the BBC. Presumably, I don't know. Tell me the history. Did Granada say, "Oh, this is not rating very well. We're going to get rid of it." Um, it wasn't so far off that, to be honest. I think initially it rated um, phenomenally well um, on ITV um, and it suited Granada's early kind of very ambitious programming. Um, as the years wore on, I think it became more anom an anomalous mm -hmm. as the nature of ITV changed, evolved, and the programme kind of lost its place in the ITV schedules. I think it ended up being transmitted on on a Sunday morning, and it would be uh, the timings would be split among the different um, ITV franchise holders. So it it would it would be on at eleven thirty in the morning on Granada, and maybe some other time on Time T. So, mm. so once you're in that kind of position on a channel like ITV, there's not really much you could do. So mm. it wasn't working for the channel anymore by the time we got to 1987, 25 years of the programme. So that was when it was um, sadly axed. Mm. Um, then we have the seven-year, what, what we pompously call the interregnum. Um, <laughs> it was, um, it, uh, <laughs> the reason it came back, I think I've got this right. Um, when Granada launched its very first day of programming, they did a tribute to the BBC. They did a lot of uh, programming on the BBC's programming as a kind of tit for tat um, in the early 90s. The BBC did uh, some programming on Granada's output. And one of the things they did was a special version of University Challenge. I think they invited the previous, uh, the team that had won the title last in 1987 to play some notable contestants. And that seemed to go down well. So that idea was hanging around, that maybe there was a viable format there. Also in people's minds and commissioners' minds was the young ones skit 
on University Challenge, which is probably one of the most memorable moments in the programme's history, not actually of our making, as it turned out. But those two things coalesced and the idea came about, you know, maybe there was some mileage in the format. So it was the BBC who approached ITV to say, can you make this for us as an independent? Which was probably one of the first times that ever happened. And I suppose makes perfect sense because somewhere at the back of the scene dock, you've got the set on shore or you've got the plans how to build it. Mm-hmm. You've got guys you know how to produce it. Hey, I'll get on with it. Absolutely that. I think also politically, um, it was at a time when the BBC was being required to find, um, I think at the time, 25% of its programming from independent producers and the thinking may have been that you know Granada is a fairly reliable independent producer. Mm. Is a fairly reliable product, so it fit that bill as well. Yeah, yeah, I understand. When you were first, um, when they first approached you to say we'd like you to oversee University Challenge, please, uh, as I said, part of the fabric of the nation, was that a daunting project to take on? Mindful of the fact that it was so well, was so part of what we've all been used to all of our lives, people of a certain age like me, thinking, oh, oh, I don't want to be the guy that messes it up. Um, To be honest, a lot of the heavy lifting had been done the series before. Um, I joined on the second series with Jeremy. The first series was produced by Kieran Roberts, uh, who then went off to become a very, very big name in um, drama production. Uh, but he produced the first series. So a lot of the difficult decisions have been made uh, before I swanned in to you know, <laughs> take it over. Again, under Kieran's oversight um, for that second series, that helped. But also, I think at the time, uh, the series had come back. Um, there was no real expectation that it would run for another quarter of a century. You know, it was, uh, let's do this series. Let's see if the BBC wants to commit to one after that. So we were very much playing it by ear and there wasn't the expectation or the pressure uh, that comes with having a long-running title. That came later. As It seems to me um, a far greater degree of scrutiny. I think um, all of us as television producers, our work is scrutinised by the public uh, and the press to a much greater degree than it ever was. Um, and, 10 years, and, years ago. and certainly I would contend an intellectual quiz property like University Challenge, because you've got a, a vast number of academics uh, gazing upon it with critical eye. Yes, I think academics tend to look on us quite fondly. Mm. Uh, I think some of our viewers and some of the press take the view that the programme presents some kind of statement about the health of the nation, the intellectual health of the nation. Um, we rather take the view that it's a quiz programme and quizzes are meant to be fun and that's all it is. And our, our teams of students, you know, let's not read too much into this. Um, but people do like to read a great deal into it, um, how we phrase the questions, what we ask about, what we think is worth asking our students about. Mm. Um, so that's that's where a great deal of scrutiny I, I find that fascinating because a lot of the quiz shows now, oh, I don't know, not lowest common denominator, but the, the but general knowledge, in my view, seems to be not as extensive as I remember it. I mean, 
uh, people inadvertently come over as dim as Toc H lamps because how can you not know that? Doesn't everybody know that? Well, clearly not. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, I, well, uh, to that point, I remember Bamba Gascoigne saying that he believed very strongly that there was such a thing called general knowledge. And I think he had in his hand there was something like 10,000 facts that the average person should be aware of if they wanted to say that they had a reasonable general knowledge. And that mm. sounds terribly formal and old fashioned, but I do think there's um, I do think there's merit in that yeah. kind of approach. I mean, from a for some from a dunce like me who didn't go to university, I find your show compulsive. Every Monday we sit and watch. And we don't, as I said, we don't understand half the questions, let alone have any possible um, aspect of gleaning an answer. But when you do get an answer on University Challenge, if you get two or three on a University Challenge right, it really makes you feel good. To what do you put down the enduring popularity of your particular show? Well, I think it is that to a greater, to, to, to a really great extent. I think if I hear one comment from viewers, um, overwhelmingly, it's, oh, I got two right. I feel all right about myself. Um, getting one right isn't quite enough, but getting two right means you're yes. okay. Your mind's still ticking over. So I think there's that. Um, yes. I think there's something about seeing something done very well even if you can't do it yourself, there's something fascinating about that, about watching you know, a 21-year-old be impossibly knowledgeable about something you have no, no um, familiarity with at all. I think that's, that's in itself an entertaining thing. Um, I think if you're an older viewer, I mean, I think a lot of our viewers, students watch, obviously, but their parents and their grandparents watch. Um, and I think they see it as some kind of insight into the kind of world that their kids might be experiencing at university. And it's quite gratifying to see that they're reasonably clean and fairly polite and looks, <laughs> uh, looks like they've actually done some work. So I think that's, that's quite reassuring. Um, I think it's a combination of things, but also I think it's one of those things that as a producer, you can't stare at too long. If you try and work out what makes this particularly successful, you'll probably end up making a complete mess of it. You know, just let it run, let it run, do as little as possible, do what's necessary, but don't don't tinker with it. You know, if it's doing yeah. okay, um, you know, viewers aren't really going to want to see um, seismic changes in this format. It seems to me. Yeah, it's it's a very reassuring program to watch. On so many levels, in my view, as is one of the other programs that came under your auspices, Countdown, another long running juggernaut of a beast of a show for Channel 4. Um, how did you end up with Countdown within your remit? Um, I think the thinking was, oh, well, he looks after University Challenge. That can't be a full time job. Let's give him Countdown as well. Um, and this was about 15 years ago at um, exactly the point that Des O'Connor joined us as host. Um, I don't think there was any great thinking uh, behind that decision to um, stick me in charge of it. But um, again, you know, it's another title that you can be very uh, proud of being associated with. Mm. You know, if you're at a party and somebody says, what do you do? And you say, oh, you work in television and you can name the programmes you work on and not feel deeply ashamed or humiliated by admitting that you work on such and such. Yeah, yeah. Such familiar territory. 
familiar territory um, and people have knowledge of them, whether they watch or not. They know basically what those shows are, are about. And, yeah, they're both about um, um, quite accessible uh, questioning, it seems to me. Mm, sure. But also, from my point of view, the countdown in since you've been involved has seen a fairly frequent don't want to say frequent i'll use it anyway i've said it okay. turnover of hosts uh that must have caused uh a dilemma or two from um, your point of view up to a point i mean obviously richard whiteley um presented the series you know brilliantly in his inimitable fashion mm. for a long, long time and i think a lot of people still associate the programme primarily with him as the definitive Countdown host. Um, I think one of the strengths Countdown has, and I think our audience research bears this out, is that the format is very, very strong. Mm. Um, people watch for the presentation, the characters in front of the boards, the characters with the dictionaries, certainly very much so. But the format itself is quite addictive, mm. I think. That's why it's such a strong format. Um, so, in a way, I think it's better able to withstand changes of presenters than some other shows. Um, sure. Having said that, you know, Nick Hewer was with us for nearly 10 years. You know, that's a, that's a long stint. I think Jeff Stelling for a much shorter period of time. But, you know, in that short period, shorter period of time, it's still made you know, hundreds of shows because we're on every weekday. Yes. Um, every week. Um, you very, very quickly rack up the numbers in terms of shows you presented. Sure. And it's a sort of show from a host's point of view where actually it's rather like a swan, isn't it? That it's all very graceful and the host doesn't really appear to do much because everyone else in the studio is doing all the all the graft. But I guess it's a tough show to host because you can't have one lapse of concentration at all. You can't drift off to say, oh, I left the fishing rod in the in the river. You know, you've really got to focus the entire time, which I imagine is, is very demanding from a host's point of view. I think it is very demanding. Um, recently, uh, we've been delighted that Colin Murray has been confirmed as our permanent host. And I think Colin's presentation is very interesting because he's so completely engaged with the format throughout. If you wanted to, as a presenter, you could slightly drift off while the clock's counting down. It's 30 seconds. Mm. Colin doesn't. He's there with his pen and his paper and he's trying to work it out and he's playing along. Um, so he's fantastically engaged with the format. The other, one of the other things he brings to it, I think, is the expertise of a sports presenter. Ah. I think, um, if you're a sports presenter in the way that Jeff Stelling obviously famously was, that gives you a tremendous grounding in terms of presenting a show that's almost entirely ad-libbed. You know, we have no water cues, no script. We prepare some notes hmm. uh, for our presenters, but essentially everything's ad-libbed. And I think both Colin and Jeff were very good at recognising that this is a match, it is a contest, and they presented it as such, and they played up the drama of the contest in the same way that you play up the drama of a football match. Mm. Um, so that's certainly very demanding, I think. And also our schedule is demanding. Uh, we record 15 shows in three days. Um, as you and I are speaking at this very moment, the team are over in studio recording Countdown. I have slipped out for a few minutes, let them carry on, which they can do brilliantly well without me. Um, but 15 shows in three days 
for a show that's pretty much ad-lib, that's uh, that's quite um, an ask of any presenter. That is intensive farming, isn't it? Jeez. It is. Um, in terms of academia, uh, I know your brother, mm-hmm. Dr. David Gwynne. He's yeah. an historian, archaeologist, much respected in that field. So do you come from a background of academic excellence in the family? Um, both my parents were academics. My mum was a lecturer. My dad, uh, towards his, the end of his life, was a professor um, actually based in Belgium. He was in the um, College of Europe at Bruges. Mm. Um, so certainly there's a kind of strong academic bent in our family, and I have completely bucked that trend. I'm, I'm the kind of, you know, is <laughs> breathing ignoramus, the, the intellectual runt of the litter, I'm afraid. <laughs> Um, I did scrape a degree just about, but um, I don't uh, I don't share either my brother's or my father's um, academic prowess. So when you were surrounded by such a learned family and books, what attracted you to television in particular? Did you did were you watching a show thinking, I'd like to do that when I grow up? No, um, it was a complete chance. Um, yes, uh, I um, I left university in 1983, um, came back to Manchester, had no idea what I wanted to do for a living in the slightest, um, never had done really. I suppose I'd vaguely thought, thinking about my family, that I might end up being a teacher. But, you know, in 1983, Thatcher in power, four million unemployed, mm-hmm. um, uh uh, we felt as a generation our prospects were really quite slim. Um, the way I got into television, roundabout story, which you can edit out, I'm sure. No, um, I want to know it. When I came back to Manchester in 1983, um, a listings magazine called City Life had just started up, modelled on Time Out and perhaps more City Limits. It was it had quite a progressive socialist agenda. Mm-hmm. That had just started up in Manchester. Um, slightly hand-to-mouth um, affair, um, but I volunteered my services as a film reviewer. Uh, so I did that. They couldn't afford to pay, but I was living at home on the dole. Um, we would go to see um, a film screening at half ten in the morning on one of the big screens in the city centre. We'd have our glass of sherry with the manager and then toddle off and write our reviews. Mm. Um, I did that for a while. Then I offered to write um, a film column um i was given the opportunity to interview people related to cinema so i managed to build up a kind of portfolio of um fairly ad hoc journalism um but still we have this thing that you know our careers aren't going anywhere i remember talking to a colleague of mine another film reviewer on city life uh my friend mark um and we'd just come out of a screening and we were both wearing our oxfam overcoats our dead men's overcoats as we call them. <laughs> all we could afford to wear and i remember him saying to me that um you realize we'll be the first generation who will not be more successful than our parents i remember mark saying that very clearly it didn't turn out that way because we both ended up with cushy jobs in the media and mark mark commode um is you know happily broadcasting um his incredibly smart film opinions to a grateful nation um, and i ended up in television so our grim prognostications for our own career happily were not um were not borne out but that meant i'd ended up with a kind of portfolio of journalism and i used that as a kind of entry way into the bbc um looking at the guardian on a monday the creative media adverts 
uh, I saw an advert for researchers for Wogan. Um, it was when the great Sir Terry was doing his three evenings a week, I think, talk show. And I thought, well, that's kind of what I'm doing, isn't it? You know, um, interviews with directors, actors. Uh, I applied for that, did not get that, but then I got other work in television, which would have been the mid late 80s i can't quite remember mid 80s i reckon yeah because yeah. we met uh in about 1986 if i remember right yes yes um one of my very first jobs in television then we met on bob's full house that's exactly right and um uh, i'm i'm gonna read it might be of some interest to you and I, i'm sure it'd be some of interest to to my listener because in the monkhouse archive I've got good, sir, and I may embarrass you with this. One of the mm. most remarkable pieces of research that I've ever witnessed, and, and certainly the great Monkhouse had ever, written, ever witnessed on a quiz show, um, and this is before the internet. This is pre-World yes. Wide Web where you could just type into Google whatever you wanted and you'll get an instant answer in, in 0.4 of a second. Uh, and what we used to do on Bob's Full House, we used to write the questions, and all our questions will be geared for a comedic, answer a straight answer from the contestant but the question would be phrased in such a way that bob could then top it with a gag whether they got the question right or wrong but there was still a, a great sedulous attitude to getting make to making sure getting those facts right making sure every question was right i'm going to bore you with this now please it dated the 7th of july 1986 and it's a letter from mr peter Gwynn, and it says dear bob thank you for your notes which i've enclosed the hippo question on page eight is wrong. <laughs> As you suggested, apparently the pygmy hippopotamus and the baby hippopotamus in general can swim quite well. Adult hippos are pretty ungainly in the water, but they still manage well enough. That's just, <laughs> that's research. That's going to the books and digging deep into the encyclopedias and the natural history books. That's fantastic. Here's the second paragraph. And this is what made Bob Monkhouse in the meeting up there in Leighton Buzzard to uh, Neil Shand and me and Gavin Osborne and, and Paul Alexander gathered around as his comedy uh, foils. Um, he said, this young man will go far. Listen to this letter, this, this paragraph in the letter. Oh, something I forgot to mention, wrote Peter Gwynn. Something I forgot to mention yesterday at the meeting is that the question Shirley Williams auditioned for the Liz Taylor role in National Velvet, true or false, is false, unfortunately. Uh, here's the clincher. In the end, the only way I could check was by phoning Mrs. Williams herself and asking her. And she said that her name was put forward for the role, but she didn't actually audition. I mean, that is, sorry, spare your blushes, that is dedication to duty. You phoned up the MP and said, uh, Mrs. Williams, did you audition for National Velvet? Yes, it, I, I do remember doing that. It was the only way I could nail that question. Um, I'd heard the idea that she'd auditioned or she hadn't auditioned, um, but every bit of research I tried just drew a blank. Um, I phoned um, the librarian of the BFI, with whom I'd become quite friendly as a researcher, he'd heard of it but couldn't nail it and it was the only way I could think of uh, to actually get it answered and then I don't know if it's still the case but back in 1986 if you phoned the House of Commons in a fairly serious tone of voice and just said Shirley Williams's office please very often they would put you through without question um, that's what happened she happened to pick up the phone herself I was delighted to say 
But the first thing she said was, look, I'm in a terrible hurry. Because that's the one thing everybody knew about Shirley Williams. She was always late for everything. So she's in a tearing hurry, but she gave me the answer. No, no, she'd been her name had been put forward, but she didn't actually um she didn't actually audition. That was fun, I, yeah. That's I do remember. The baby hippo's swimming capacity, no. I'd forgotten that. Yeah. No, when you birth. That was what that because you were presented with um a pile of paper, uh A4 paper. Um, I want to say eight inches high. There's the watch, there's all the questions on the various subjects, um, science, nature showbiz whatever and you would plow you and sue andrew i think although yes. maybe sue and the great sue andrew the executive producer sue andrew would would she, was she more involved with contestants or was she a question researcher like you more involved in contestants ah okay okay when you think of the the great talent that bob's full house spawned and all of you have gone on to terrific things beginning your careers on a show like bob's full house and i like to think under the great man's auspices it was a a bit of a baptism of fire, but a pretty good grounding. Very good grounding. Um, I remember um, the producer, Jeff Miles, who took me on as questions researcher for Botswell House, saying, you know, um, I would be able to sit in on the writers' meetings, the, you know, the questions meetings. And I kind of thought, well, if I shut up and sit at the back and say nothing and just listening, I'm probably going to learn a great deal. I don't know what I'll learn, but I know I'll learn a great deal. So the great man himself, Bob, uh, Neil Shand, as you say, uh, John Junkin was in all those Alexander, and of course yourself. Um, And I did find it absolutely fascinating to observe those meetings. Um, Baptism of Fire, I think I'm right in saying that um, when I started attending those meetings, Paul Alexander, brilliant writer, Mm. He'd started attending those meetings as well, and his submitted written material would be scrutinised by uh, Bob, John, Neil, mm. yourself. And um, I thought that must be absolutely terrifying, but the most fantastic, most fantastic learning curve, because you just understand what a performer does when they see your material, how they adapt it, how they change it, and how it ends up actually being broadcast. So those were incredible sessions. I remember them. I remember them very, very vividly. Yeah. One thing that um, struck me, if you don't mind me saying so, I remember you know you and Bob always, I think, got on very, very well. You you had a very strong personal relationship, the pair of you. And I remember you know obviously Bob had the utmost respect for your comedy genius, um, but also he was very aware that you had a flair for words, the kind of exotica from the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, <laughs> you loved these ornate words, um, archaicisms. Um, I remember the time you introduced Bob to the word gallimorphy. Ah! And, and Bob beamed for hours after this, um, like a Cheshire cat. He was so absolutely thrilled. Um, and, and of course, you, your comedy, as well as that, it also had to me this undertow of the most staggering layer of depravity. Um, yeah, I think myself has been pretty unshockable, but you, Mr. Edmonds, um, you could make some Peter blush. <laughs> I'm just just to backtrack a little bit. Actually, mm-hmm. the word gallimorphy was pressed into service, uh, mm-hmm. because the great monkhouse. Okay, anecdotally, this uh, for you, me, and my listener, the great monkhouse wanted to. Of wanted a felicitous phrase for every occasion. So yes. even when introducing the the, the, the prizes, which were a, a food mixer and you know um, stuff you can get from Argos, yes, 
for fourpence. Um, he would always introduce th- this. You can win this trio of triumphs. Yes. Yeah. Uh, this assemblage of magnificence and also this gallimorphy of goodies. <laughs> Yes. So the word was used just to introduce a bunch of prizes. Yes. Mm, mm, mm. We then bumped into one another again. You had, by which time, left the BBC, decamped to Manchester, returned to Manchester to work for Granada Television. Yes. And then we found ourselves rubbing shoulders with great glee uh, in 1990 on a show called Happy Birthday Coronation Street, presented by Scylla Black. Yes. Oh, it was a beast of a thing, wasn't it? Blimey. I mean, it it was rather a sprawling affair, wasn't it? It had every kind of variety performance in there. Song, dance, comedy, sketches, um, contestant interaction. Um, A live link to Cliff Richard performing a concert at Wembley. (laughs) And everything was in there. Absolutely everything. And recorded, if I remember. And bear in mind, this was celebrating, what, 30 years of Coronation Street. So... A lot of it was of a spurious kind of link to fill an hour and a half. But uh, once again, all manner of problems were thrown at it because, if I remember rightly, it was recorded on one of the coldest days in January of that year and the biggest snowstorms that ever hit the north of England. Absolutely, yes. We woke up to a thick blanket of snow, which we had not foreseen, Um this is a time when we were trying to bring together people from the four corners of the UK to be part of this wonderful celebration. So all morning, whilst we were trying to actually produce the programme, uh, we'd be getting calls from stranded members of the Coronation Street cast who were meant to come in and be part of the audience saying, oh, you know, I'm stuck at my drive, you know, it's covered in snow. Can you send a four-wheel drive and a man with a shovel? Um, <laughs> the worst was finding that the uh, the dancers' costumes, which had been shipped up from London overnight, were stuck in a snowdrift. The train was stuck in a snowdrift outside Stoke-on-Trent. And I remember being asked, could I find a local airfield and a helicopter that could take off and hover over the train, send down a rope ladder, and all the costumes for the dancers could be airlifted to safety and warmth <laughs> oh blimey that was um one day when you don't need snow and if i remember correctly hour and a half show so it was recorded the recording finally ended in the wee small hours of the morning mm. uh Jay the producer and the team went straight into the edit <clears throat> um but the edit took longer than anticipated and in fact they were still editing the final part of the show whilst the first part was transmitting a bit skin of the teeth. Yeah, oh, God. I can imagine hives. I've I've, I've got goosebumps just thinking about it. Yeah, absolutely. I I went to the edit. Wells, Mark Wells, Mm. um, who, who, as a consequence of of his career, has done phenomenally well as well. He was a researcher on the show along with you. And he said, come on, Colt, let's go into the edit. We'll have a watch. Oh, my God, it was like long day's journey into night. Yes. Then if I remember rightly, Peter, uh, when the edit was finished, Jane McNaught opened a bottle of champagne in relief. It popped and an awful lot of the fizz went over the tape machine. <laughs> <laughs> but that's purely for your benefit. Uh, do you remember the oh, – sorry, um, okay, in memory lane now. Sorry mm-hmm. about this. Do you, do you remember the, the message from the Queen on that particular I- show? 
I do remember the message from the Queen. When I started working on the programme, um, I was told in very hushed terms, oh, this is a tremendous item to end the show. You won't believe it. Nobody would actually say what it was. Um, um, So final moments, have I remembered correctly, all the Coronation Street cast gathered on the set, um, Scylla Black being large and gorgeous and wonderful, um, read out a message from the palace. Mm. Um, now, yeah. to the untrained ear, this sounded as if this sounded as if Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth II had written personally to the program to <laughs> congratulate it because she was such an ardent fan of coronation streets <laughs> that she yes. couldn't help herself from putting quill to parchment. Um, it. It was probably a little bit more prosaic than that, wasn't it? The means by which this this document was procured. Uh, well, uh, certainly when David Liderman handed me the the letter from Sir Robin Javrin, I think, mm. who, who is the Queen's personal secretary, it was fairly innocuous. Uh, thank you for informing Her Majesty of this this anniversary, and she wishes you well for the for the program. Somehow, in translation via the script and various other means. Uh, as you say, it was Her Majesty's favourite show and she never misses yeah. it. <laughs> well, it made I, I remember you and Wellesley saying, we're going to get locked up. Yes, we thought we would go to the Tower. We yes. changed thought that this is probably treasonable. You know, to subordinate Her Majesty for the sake of ratings. Yeah, that, 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 that <laughs> the feature of the monarchy. And if I remember rightly, that one of the tabloids did run it as a small headline. Oh, did it run? Yes, yes. absolutely. Um you you stayed with Coronation Street because you then produced uh, another big celebration. I think that was a rather more, uh, a less, let's say, ambitious affair. But nevertheless, yes. because it's it's an extraordinary show to produce. You're you're celebrating a show and you want to make it entertaining. One of the, mm. the, the most beloved soap operas in the country. You're trying to make it entertaining. But they must be devils to produce, really, in mitigation. Um, it was quite tricky. I, I think my brief was, can you come up with something that celebrates Coronation Street but looks like the Generation Game? Uh, uh, the <laughs> was, no, of course not, but we'll do this. Um, so uh, there were some kind of games played, I seem to remember. Some members of the Coronation Street cast very kindly um, obliged us with a song. Um, I remember the wonderful Liz Dawn singing um, As Time Goes By. Um, from Casablanca, of course. Yeah. But she, um, bless her, she wasn't quite able to get her head around the lyrics, and I think sang, sang you must remember this, a kiss is just a sigh. <sighs> this, this, mm. this kiss, this kiss, what rhymes with this? But, you know, um, a fabulous performance for all that. Oh, um, God, yeah, absolutely. It's one of those shows, oh, I was glad when it was over. <laughs> <laughs> Mind you, you've worked with Entertainment Turns, as I said in the introduction. Um, Clive Anderson talks back a chat show with yes. Clive Anderson. That, that came under your auspices too. I was a researcher on Clive yeah, Anderson, yes. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, Lily, Lily Savage, like an early Lily Savage show from Granada. I think it was called Live, Live from the Lily Drone. Live from the Lily Drone, yes. The Lily Drone being um, actually the Leighton Institute in Blackpool. Um <laughs> friend and colleague of mine, um, Paul Darling, whilst developing the programme, thought if Savage presented the Wheel Tappers and Shunters Social Club, you know, that great Granada mm-hmm. show, what would it look like? And that, that was the approach, really. So we had Savage uh, presenting from this Northern Working Men's Club, this actual Northern Men's Working Club in front of an actual uh, Northern audience. Um, 
um, a series of kind of variety acts. It was a slightly ambitious format, I must admit. Mm. Um, but, you know, Paul O'Grady, I think, is a genius um, and Savage, um, an absolutely glorious creation. Mm. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I agree with the O'Grady. Uh, the, the genius status which you have bestowed upon him, he the fastest brain, and of yeah. course, based on his cabaret experience, quite at home in that bare pit of a of a, an audience and a venue. Yes, well, if you've played near the crowd at the Vauxhall Tavern yeah. uh, for years, which which he had done, um, yeah. then uh, there's nothing that audience can throw at you that you haven't dealt with, and worse. Any tough characters you've you've dealt with, maybe on Clive Anderson or on or guests on Lily? Anyone cut up, rush, uh, rough, uh, played fast and loose, been awkward? You think? Oh, oh. Um, I do remember um, a slightly awkward interaction with Jeffrey Archer on Clive Anderson talks back. Um, Jeffrey had. Jeffrey, <laughs> me and Jeffrey were best mates. I call him Jeffrey. Um, the program had been trying to book Jeffrey Archer for a long time um, and had failed. Um, they brought in a very high-powered researcher, talent booker, who actually managed to secure his agreement um, to appear. Um, that person then vanished, so I had to look after Mr. Archer on the day. And I remember him phoning me on his way towards the studio saying, you know, I've been insured that I'm coming in to take part in a serious, a serious political discussion programme. That's the case, isn't it? And I thought, mm, bloody hell, how on earth do I manage this? Because the absolutely honest answer is, well, not quite, but you can't say that because I still need the, you know, um, the guest to turn up. So um, I reassured him about the nature of the programme. I did say, you know, we're going to have fun with the items. Um, we're going to talk to you about yourself, your personality, your controversies. And he seemed happy with that. I felt that what I said was reasonably honest. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, yes. Um, he appeared, he did the item. It didn't go very well. He and Clyde rather fell out on screen. Um, and I think we were threatened with legal action um, immediately after the recording, which I felt very bad about it. Hat trick, the producers completely took it in their stride, um, which I wasn't able to do. But um, that's something else that gives me nightmares still. Yes. Yeah, I'll bet. So comparatively, looking back on your the breadth of your career, I suppose. OK, I'll ask you straight up. I think I know the answer. What do you prefer? light entertainment, working with entertainers, or the rather more academic quiz shows with which you've been associated for 30 years? <laughs> um, I, I'm not sure. I think you're expecting me to say the latter, the university challenges of this world. I think one thing I would say, um, um, I had a, quite a long association with the programme Stars in Their Eyes, Again, oh, yes. again, produced by Jane McNaught. We had the most fun making that show. Um, it, it was just an absolute delight to do. Working with lovely members of the public, working with a brilliant musical director in uh, Ray Monk, mm. um, choreographers, dancers, um, the whole package really in terms of entertainment. Mm. I think that was the most fun I've had in television. I enjoyed that um, enormously. And ultimately, the most bonkers of formats, really. Yes, completely. Uh, yes, if you pitched it now, would it get taken up? I wonder. 
But I my goodness me, it was a ratings topper for the thick end of a decade, wasn't it? Yeah. It did. It did very well. Yes. You know, some clergyman from Watchdale says, I'm going to be Diana Ross for tonight. Of course you are. Glorious. Truly glorious. You have been a mainstay on British television in my life and on British television for oh, all those years. Um, when can we? When can we see the new series of University Challenge uh, with Arma at the, uh, at the helm? Um, again, scheduling is down to the BBC. If past years are anything to go by, I would expect it to be on screen first or second week in July. Great. Looking forward to it enormously. Um, thank you for all the entertainment and the intellectual rigour you've brought to our screens for all this time. Uh, it's been an absolute joy chatting with you and great to have a catch up in front of my listener. I've really, really enjoyed it. Um, this is the closest I'll get to This Is Your Life. So I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Fantastic. We have been listening to one of the nation's most experienced and multi-talented executive producers and also one of the nicest people in television, Mr. Peter Gwynn. Thank you, Peter. My pleasure. Thank you, Colin. Thank <laughs> you.